sing together our call to worship. this morning, especially all of our visitors to the service. We're very excited to have you with us, and we welcome you to Memorial, and we want you to feel at home with us and have a good time and a good worship experience, and if there's anything that we can help you do, just ask. Feel free to ask anybody. We have this service, and then a 10 o'clock Sunday school, and then an 11 o'clock service in the sanctuary, so we hope we can find, we have something here that you will um, love and enjoy. Our next song is called My Savior, My God, so sing along with us. not skilled to understand what God has willed, what God has planned. I only know at His right hand stands one who is my Savior. I take Him at His word and be Christ died to save Would leave his grace on high. 
Good to see everybody. We've had some big crowds, even though we've had such heavy snows like we had this morning. Uh, we called off all kind of things around here. It's good to see everybody. Get you something to drink and eat. And children, we ask you to come forward to join Kelly for a children's sermon right now and greet each other for a few moments. Has anybody ever had show and tell at their school? Well, I always wanted to have show and tell when I was little, and I'm going to do show and tell with you guys. I'm going to show you some pictures, and I'm going to tell you about these people, okay? This is Caroline's, this is Caroline's pop-pop and her mama, and that's her granddad, and that's her Aunt Allie and her Nana, and that's her daddy and her brother Eli, and these are lots of pictures that we have up in our house of our family. And these people are very special to us, and, and I bet your family is very special to you. And one thing that we like to do is we like to tell other people when we learn about somebody that's special. We want to tell them all about it. We want to share that stuff with our friends. We want to tell our friends about our family and how special they are to us. Well, this one I want to tell you, hang on, you're sitting on my paper, thank you. I want to tell you about a guy named John the Baptist, and I want to show you him, what he looks like. Well, this might not be what he looks like, but this is what he looks like today. That's not. That might be yours in a minute. And this guy named John the Baptist, he met a guy named Jesus. Do we know who Jesus is? Everybody's heard of Jesus, right? Well, John the Baptist met Jesus, and once he met him, he wanted to show and tell everybody about Jesus. He said these things. He said... Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I've seen him, and I tell you that he is the Son of God. So John the Baptist wanted to tell everybody about his new friend Jesus. And once we know Jesus and we have him in our heart and we love him, we need to show and tell everybody about Jesus too, just like John the Baptist did. Okay? So you have to tell everybody about how good and kind and loving Jesus is and how he's your best friend. Okay? Okay, let's say a prayer. Close your eyes. Dear Jesus, help us this week to show and tell others about you and your love. Amen. I tried to tell Kelly to talk about John the Methodist, but she wouldn't do that. It's uh, good to see everyone here today. Glad you're here. Um, if you have a prayer request, we would like very much to share that concern with you, and we would invite you to share that concern on an index card. Our ushers are coming forward now. If you'll raise your hand and get one of these cards, you're welcome to write what you wish and what I hope I can read uh, to share as we join together in prayer. We, um, we believe in the power of prayer. We also believe there's something very special about the church gathering together in prayer, that there's a, a power, of an excitement, an energy there that 
that is truly wonderful, so we invite you to share that with us. We also will be passing our registration of attendance um, pads in a moment, and we invite you to register your attendance today. Uh, I have, let's see, Whitney I was supposed to call on for an announcement uh, from a Sunday school class. There she is. Good morning. Um, the Cross Training Sunday School class, I don't know if y'all know, y'all normally call us the Young Adult Sunday School class. We actually have a name now. It's called Cross Training. Um, we'd like to invite you, if you saw the posters up, um, to Cheerful Hearts Midwinter Dinner, February 10th at 6 p.m. right here in the Fellowship Hall. Um, tickets will go on sale um, next Sunday. Um, they'll be $10 a person. A nursery will be provided by the youth. Um, please join us for a night full of fun, fellowship, and um, food. Of course, you're going to be there for the food. Um, any questions, please see any member of our class. Um, we, we'd love to share with you what um, is going to be taking place and what's going to be going on. Um, look for more information in the weeks to come, and we look forward to seeing you there. When we were so concerned uh, toward the end of the year that we were about to have a financial shortfall, the... Um, cross-training Sunday school class um, stepped up and said we want to do something to help and that's part of what they're doing in this dinner and I think that's fantastic I think it's great when groups within a church or individuals see something that needs to be done and, and says let me do it um, let me add it and so I commend um, that Sunday school class that's terrific and that should be a great night of fellowship as well um, anybody know of any other announcements? Youth is as usual today. We were not snowed out, so we will be here. Um, I do want to recognize some folks who are joining our church who've been a part of us now for a good long while, but uh, officially to be recognized. Um, uh, everybody calls him Hank. Um, I think that's easier than his given first name. Hank Pennington, would you stand? And your wife, Lynn Pennington. And Lynn's son and their son, Alex Guest. Ah, hey, standing, okay. I told, he popped up so quick, I just didn't see. Um, uh, Alex is very active in our youth program, and I'm very pleased about that. There also is a son off at college in Charleston. Zach will be recognized uh, officially on a future occasion, but he, uh, he was here during the, the Christmas holidays. He looks like Alex, but about three feet taller. If you, but uh, uh, anyway, I told Alex the other day, there's one thing about, you know, his name is Alex Guest. He'll always be a guest in the Pennington household. We, uh, we welcome you folks and glad to have you as a part of our fellowship. I'm sorry, my writers are on strike too. So, could we uh, could we go ahead and collect the um, um, prayer cards, and we'll have our time together in prayer. Our sermon this morning, I'm told, is not a sermon, but Bill Clute is bringing it, and it's always something enlightening when Bill brings us a word. I'm looking forward to that. Let us pray together. We give you thanks, Lord, 
for your presence here today and for your love for us in spite of ourselves. We, I think, have an honest estimation of ourselves and we know that there are people that have done worse in life than we have and people that have done better, but we are people who have at times failed you and yet you love us anyway. We rejoice at that good love. We're grateful at occasions when you have used us and we have been successful in following you and serving you. Those are wonderful occasions and we give you our thanks for empowering us by your spirit to do these good things. We pray that you would always be using us in our daily lives as lights to shine a little light into the darkness of people's lives that we come in contact with. Because all around us we bump into people every day who are hurting in some way. And sometimes they just need someone who can sympathize but even more can offer a word of hope, a word of hope. And there's always such hope when you are at work in our lives and in our world. We're thankful for this. These are our special prayers for this day. We pray that you would bless our nation as we choose leaders. We pray that they may be godly people who lead the world toward peace. We pray for Jim McFall, in his recovery from bypass surgery. We pray for healing for Carl Reinick and Mike Berg. We pray for comfort for Norma Willeman on the loss of her husband, Dave. We pray for mom hospitalized for heart problems. We pray for some groups that spread hate in our world especially for Al-Qaeda, Hamas, and Hezbollah. We pray and we're thank, thankful for Evie, Larry, and Peggy Smith's great niece who had successful heart procedure. We pray that she might continue to make progress. We give you thanks for an answered prayer. We pray for Deanne, who has an ear infection, for Glenn Dice with cancer, for Debbie Lawless for a quick recovery from an infection, for Lynn Clark and Dean Price for comfort and peace. We pray for Rhonda Babbage for quick recovery from thyroid removal. We pray for the Ken Hall family after Ken's death yesterday in a car accident. We pray for a family struggling with problems with their son, for Benny Hannon's mother, Virginia, for Martha Gibson, Jay's mother, for Lynn Pennington for successful chemo treatments, for Bill Bomar in his time of illness as well. These are our prayers through Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Take it away, Bill. Good morning. As Arthur said, this morning I don't have a sermon for you, but I do have a lot of information I'm going to go through in a very short period of time. When I last spoke in this, in this service, I spoke on the meaning or purpose of life. And at the end of that message, I challenged everyone to be prepared to explain why you believe in the existence of God and why you believe Christianity is the truth. I referred to 1 Peter 3.15, which says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I hope you've given this challenge some thought. If you have, you probably realize it's not a very easy challenge. You probably wrestled with, where do I start? And is it really anything more than just faith? I believe it's a lot more than just faith. I believe there's a lot of evidence we can look at. This morning, I'm going to present some of that evidence in what I'm calling the case for the existence of God. I'm going to give evidence, but I'm going to be careful not to say that I'm proving God. God is immaterial. We can't reach out and touch him like we can a table or a chair. We can't prove him like we can 2 plus 2 equals 4. God is something that we must experience. Gravity is another immaterial thing we can think of. We can't reach out and touch it. We can't fully explain where it comes from. It's something that we experience and we see the effects of it. The effects are the evidence of its existence. If you watch any detective show on TV, you've probably noticed that they always lack a sufficient number of corresponding eyewitnesses, so therefore they have to piece together evidence to determine what most likely took place. This morning, I'm going to present three effects or pieces of evidence that point to the likelihood of the existence of God. Just like in the detective investigation, I won't take any single piece of evidence by itself. It's a cumulative case, but when you put them all together, I believe you'll see a conclusion that it leads to. Three pieces of evidence I will present are the first cause argument, the argument to design, and the argument from morality. But the first thing we need to do is explain exactly what it is we're investigating. What do we mean when we refer to God? In this case, I'm referring to God as the immaterial, supernatural being that is timeless or eternal, powerful, intelligent, good or moral, personal, and the creator of this universe. The first piece of evidence is called the first cause argument, and the argument goes like this. Everything that comes into existence has a cause. The universe came into existence, therefore the universe has a cause. The first point is a simple idea. Look around this room. Everything you see came into existence and has a cause. The tables, the chairs, even the person sitting next to you came into existence and has a cause. None of these has existed forever. They all had a beginning. Even the jokes that Arthur tell that seem like they've been around forever, they too have a beginning. Unfortunately, it's the end they seem to be lacking. <laughs> now, some people believe that we need to keep faith and science separate. I don't. I believe that good science strengthens our faith. And in fact, the second point of the first cause argument that the universe came into existence is supported by science. Until the 20th century, many scientists believed that the universe was eternal. They believed that it just existed forever. 
But in 1929, Edwin Hubble observed that distant galaxies were moving farther and farther apart at a constant rate. What he observed was that the universe was expanding. With this knowledge, scientists were able to propose that if we could move backwards in time, we would see these galaxies coming closer and closer together until they were on top of each other and became compressed at a starting or creation point, a point at which the universe came into existence. This was a key piece of evidence in support of the Big Bang Theory, which was proposed earlier in the century. Now, the Big Bang proposed that not only did the universe come into existence at this event, but also space, time, and matter came into existence. Now, in addition to the expanding universe, we have the laws of thermodynamics that support the, the idea that the universe came into existence. I know this is pretty basic stuff. I'm sure everyone is up to date on thermodynamics, but just in case, does anybody need a brief review on thermodynamics? I see about three honest people in church this morning. <laughs> the laws of thermodynamics deal with the exchange of heat into energy within systems. For example, the Earth would be considered an open system because it receives energy from an outside source, the sun. The universe, on the other hand, would be considered an isolated system because it doesn't receive energy from an outside source. The second law of thermodynamics states that in an isolated system, the amount of usable energy will always decrease until the usable and unusable energy reach an equilibrium, or what is known as a heat death. If this universe was eternal, then we should expect that by now it would have reached this heat death, but clearly there's still user, usable energy available. We have all the stars and the sun. Think of it like a thermos filled with hot coffee. When you put the top on it, it becomes a closed system. Think of the heat as potential energy. The thermos will keep the coffee hot for, for a little while, but after enough time, all the heat will dissipate. If the thermos was eternal and existed forever, we could expect by now, according to the second law of thermodynamics, all the heat would be gone. There would be no energy left. The famous astrophysicist Stephen Hawking had this to say about the eternal universe. The theory that the universe has existed forever is in serious difficulty with the second law of thermodynamics. The second law states that disorder always increases with time. Like the argument about human progress, it indicates that there must have been a beginning. Otherwise, the universe would be in a state of complete disorder by now, and everything would be at the same temperature. In an infinite and everlasting universe, every line of sight would end on the surface of a star. This would mean that the night sky would have been as bright as the surface of the sun. The only way of avoiding this problem would be if, for some reason, the stars did not shine before a certain time. So we see that the universe came into existence, and according to the third point of the first cause argument, it must have a cause. This cause would have to be supernatural since it existed before the universe, which all our natural laws are based on. This cause also preceded time since space, time, and matter all came into existence with the universe. We can assume that due to the vast size of the universe that this cause must have been very powerful. So let's take another look at our definition of God that we're investigating. With the first cause argument, we found an immaterial being that is supernatural, timeless, and powerful. It appears we're on the right track, so let's continue on to the second piece of evidence. This is the argument to design, sometimes referred to as the teleological argument. Now imagine that when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin first hopped off onto the moon, they looked up and saw a beautiful working grandfather clock. Would we all assume that it just came together over time and appeared there on the moon? Not likely. An investigation would ensue and they'd try to figure out who designed it and who put it there. Now imagine this earth and all of the living creatures on it. Human beings are more complex than any piece of machinery ever made, much more complex than a clock. And does it seem logical to think that it just came together over time? Stephen Hawking noted in his book, A Brief History of Time, 
that over 35 different characteristics of the universe and its physical laws must be precisely fine-tuned for physical life to be possible. The odds of all 35 characteristics just coming together by chance are very low. How low is it, you might ask? Well, physicist Paul Davies has calculated that the odds against the initial conditions being suitable for later star formation without which planets could not exist is one followed by a thousand billion billion zeros at least. That number is so large I can't display it on the screen, so I'll just refer to it as alpha. Now, if you started counting one number for every second for the next billion years, you would still be nowhere near reaching alpha. In fact, you wouldn't even be 1% of the way towards reaching alpha. What this is telling us is that if we created alpha number of universes, odds are that no more than one of them would be suitable for life. The odds are virtually zero. Now, if we compare that to something else that we consider a long shot, winning the Powerball lottery, the odds of winning the Powerball lottery are 1 in 146,107,962. That means if we played the Powerball lottery 146,107,962 times, odds are we would win no more than once. But compared to life in the universe, the Powerball sounds like money in the bank. With such low odds, the idea that there is some intelligence in design in the formation of the universe would be, seem to be a logical assumption. We could also assume that this designer also had a choice to either make or not make the universe and all living creatures in it. It was a personal free will decision. So let's see where that puts our investigation. The first cause argument gave us something that is immaterial, supernatural, timeless and powerful. The argument to design gave us something that is intelligent and personal. Both arguments give us a creator. So let's go to the third piece of evidence, the argument from morality. The argument goes like this. If objective moral laws exist, then a moral lawgiver exists. Objective moral laws do exist, therefore a moral lawgiver exists. We Christians believe that this moral lawgiver is God. I want to be very clear on one point, though. I'm not saying that a person has to believe in God to be moral. I know of many non-believers that are moral and some believers that are not. All I'm arguing here is that there, for there to be any objective morals, there must be a moral lawgiver. And also, this moral lawgiver must be greater than us, otherwise we'd have no reason to follow it. Christians believe that when we were created, God wrote these moral laws on our conscience. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 2, 14 through 15, so when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences testify in support of this, and their competing thoughts either accuse or excuse them. A common argument against the existence of God is all the evil in the world. How could there be a good God with all the evil we see on the news every evening? Well, this argument appeals to the emotions, but it has a serious flaw. One, if there's evil in the world, there must be something called good. Two, if there's evil and good, there must ex exist a moral standard or law by which we can differentiate between what is evil and good. Three, if there's a moral law, there must be a moral lawgiver. We say that moral lawgiver is God. So, the existence of evil actually turns out to be evidence for the existence of God. Now, if someone wants to argue that there are objective moral laws, but no God, then they need to explain where they think that moral laws come from. If they argue that objective morals were created by humans, then a, a problem arises. What is moral is just that person's personal belief of what is right or wrong. What is right for one person wouldn't be binding or even the same to another. All morals would be relative to every person's personal opinion. 
It would lead to a majority rule where minority opinions have no, no value. It would lead to total chaos. Now, if they want to argue that morals, objective morals are a result of evolution, then the morals would be relative to that person's point in evolution. If someone did something that was considered immoral by one person, it's just because the immoral person isn't as, as evolved as the other. All morals would be relative to every person's point within evolution. You couldn't fault someone for not being as evolved as another person. And if the more evolved person was in the minority, his opinion probably wouldn't matter anyways. Now, some people will argue that there are no objective morals, that morals are all relative to the culture or society. That would seem like a good argument on the surface until you ask a couple questions. Then you will find that everyone shares some objective moral beliefs. For example, if you ask anyone from any culture if it would be, like, be right to take their young child from them and in front of everyone just chop it up and, for no good reason, if they're being honest, they will say, no, that's not moral. Now, there are morals that are relative to cultures, but they're just a layer on top of the objective morals. It's like loose dirt on top of the ground that can be swept away. It's not a foundation, but objective moral laws are a foundation. I think the people that believe that all morals are relative believe it only when it's affecting others. Once it starts to affect them, then they believe it should be objective. So objective moral laws do exist, and therefore a moral lawgiver exists. If we take one last look at our definition of God, I believe we found all the pieces. The first cause argument gave us an immaterial, supernatural, timeless, powerful being. The design argument gave us an intelligent, personal being. Both the first cause and the design arguments gave us a creator, and the moral argument gave us a good, moral being. We've looked at the first cause argument, the argument to design, and the argument for morality. The evidence seems to point to the likelihood of the existence of God. So what good is this information to us? The good is that the knowledge of God provides answers to life's difficult questions. Only with the existence of God does life make sense, and only with the sacrificial death and resurrection of his son Jesus do we have any future hope. Imagine a man walking down a rocky path on a pitch black night. He trips in potholes and stumbles over rocks. He hears noises off in the distance, but he can't tell what they are. He has no direction. A second man comes along, he has a flashlight. He can see the narrow path that's illuminated by the light. He can avoid potholes and not trip over rocks, but he can't see what's making the noises off in the distance. He also doesn't see a turn in the road and ends up at a dead end. A third man comes along, but during the daytime. He can see and make sense of everything. He sees the potholes and the rocks. He can see what's making the noise off in the distance, and he can also see the turn in the road. He can, make the right, he can find the right path to take. That's how it is in life. The first man had no God. The second man had a false God, and the third man had the one true God. I'm going to close with a quote by C.S. Lewis. For those of you that aren't familiar with him, he's a very popular author among Christians. His book, Mere Christianity, had a big influence on me. Some of you may be more familiar, more familiar with his book, The Chronicles of Narnia, which was recently a very popular movie. In his book, The Weight of Glory, he wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not just because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I think that's a good summary to my message this morning. God is all around, all around us. We experience him every day. Expand your faith by noticing all the amazing things in our world, which are the evidence of his existence. At this time, let us prepare for our offering.
I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. may you go from here with the knowledge that not only does our faith make us feel the presence of God, but it makes our minds understand that there is a God who cares for us. And may that strengthen your faith every day.
great, great week.